This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Heritage New Zealand. Like you, most of us are on holiday now, but we thought you might like to hear some of our best programmes from last year. In this programme, Bill Southworth looks at how hard it was sailing to the new Dunedin colony. I report on Sir Ernest Shackleton's support vessel Aurora, and Judy Southworth has been reading of novelist J.B. Priestley's visit to Dunedin. People frustrated at the school holiday airport delays might like to consider the travails of the first European settlers to Dunedin. They travelled 25,000 kilometres across great oceans for nearly four months, often battling stormy seas, knowing some of them would not make it alive. This report from Bill Southworth. Before the first two ships, the Philip Lang and the John Wycliffe, set sail for Otago in late 1847 to found a settlement with a Scottish flavour, there had been an ideological tussle as to what the religious nature of this New Zealand company's settlement should be. The fervent religious view of the New Church of Scotland won out, and particularly the narrow religious view of the settler's spiritual leader, the Reverend Thomas Burns. Because of this, Burns would later set the tone for the voyage of the Philip Lang. The ship carried 247 passengers when it set off from Granite near Glasgow, and the John Wycliffe set off from Gravesend near London a few days later with 97 passengers on board. Also on board that ship was Captain William Cargill, a retired soldier and banker who had run the colony for the New Zealand Company. The company had difficulties in recruiting enough people to take on the risk of going to the empire's most distant colony. The majority were members of the Free Church of Scotland, but had varying degrees of commitment to that faith. Many, however, were economic refugees, escaping from the poverty and unemployment in the old country. The historian Alexander McLintock has observed, Few, indeed, were burning with holy zeal, dedicated to the cause of Christ and his mission. Unquestionably, the great majority of these early immigrants belonged to what Wakefield had called the anxious classes, men and women whose life in the homeland promised little beyond the soulless drudgery of the years, who had little or no capital to invest in any enterprise, and who could contribute nothing beyond their labour and their industry. The majority at least professed their belief in the free church gospel. But there is more than a suspicion that deep down beneath the undercurrents of religious fervour and spiritual exaltation, which ostensibly bore the enterprise along, it was economics rather than religion which induced the tiny band to cross the sea. They often also had skills not suitable for Otago, and there were too few farmers and farm labourers amongst them. Most were tradesmen, storekeepers and weavers. At the outset, the Philip Lang experienced miserable weather. As one of the passengers, Jane Bannerman, recalled many years later, Never while I have the power of memory shall I forget that sad, dreary day. I kind of described the discomfort around us. The poor passengers looked so dispirited and weary, women weeping and little children looking so homesick. There seemed no room for them on the deck. I heard someone say, I think it was the mate, 
the one half of these people will never cross the line. Even before it cleared the Firth, the ship was hit by the fury of an early winter storm and was forced to shelter off the coast while its shivering passengers gazed upon the snow-capped mountains. Ten days later, they were able to set off again, but the following day, off Dublin Bay, another furious storm hit, which forced the ship to seek shelter in Milford Haven. Finally, three weeks after leaving Scotland, they were able to set off into the Atlantic and head for their only landfall, Otago, nearly four months and 25,000 kilometres away. The John Whitcliffe also hit bad weather when it left London a few days later. Its seams opened up and its pumps were constantly at work. Throughout the entire voyage, its pumps were kept going morning and night. Close hauled with leaking seams swept by rain and hail and sleet and labouring in heavy seas, the ship struggled southwards until she ran into better latitudes. Once the sun came out, so did the passengers, blinking in the unaccustomed light. Unfortunately for the immigrants in the forecastle, even in southern latitudes, the John Whitcliffe was still a wet ship, and on the long voyage it was impossible to keep their bedding and possessions dry. Each ship had a surgeon on board. As a spur to them providing efficient service, they were to be paid one pound sterling for each baby born on the voyage, ten shillings for each passenger landed alive in Otago, plus a gratuity of twenty-five pounds. However, it was subject to a deduction of one pound for each death. Quite an incentive for them to try and do a good job. On the Philip Lang, four children would die during the voyage. The Reverend Burns hoped that the isolation of the long sea voyage would create the opportunity to build a God-fearing community ready to populate his ideal religious settlement. He soon realised he would have his work cut out. Even before they left Scotland, five of the immigrants had come back on board drunk and behaving in what was said to be the greatest impropriety. Crew members had also been imprisoned for disobeying orders when no grog ration was issued. Burns adhered strictly to religious observances and twice a day, morning and evening, there were services, with an additional one for Sundays. This touched the hearts of at least some of the faithful, including this passenger, James Adam. It was a fine sight to see the immigrants and sailors gather around the grey-haired divine on a dark and stormy night. His only son, Arthur, a young lad of 16 years, held the old gentleman steady with one hand when the vessel rolled heavily, but in the other he held a bull's-eye lantern that his father might see to read. On such occasions, Burns would remonstrate with immigrants for their shortcomings, such as profane language and non-attendance at services. The Reverend's Bayful Isle also fell on a couple who he suspected were not married. Burns' wife refused to speak to them, and for two months the couple spent a miserable time after being humiliated and sent to Coventry. Near the coast, the couple finally relented and were married. The man became an implacable enemy of Burns once the Neden had been reached. Cargill's ship, John Wycliffe, was the first to arrive at Port Chalmers and entered Otago Harbour under perfect weather conditions. Three weeks later, the Philip Lang pulled alongside. With both ships now in port, Captain Cargill delivered an oration to the new settlers, which he had put together on the voyage. My friends, it is a fact that the eyes of the British Empire, and I may say of Europe and America, are upon us. The rulers of our great country have struck out a system of colonization on liberal and enlightened principles, 
and, small as we are now, we are the precursors of the first settlement which is to put that system to the test. With the arrival of the second ship, the lovely autumn weather broke, and for eight days a steady, soaking rain set in. It would be followed by an unusually severe winter. I'm grateful to Alexander McClintock for his book, A History of Otago. This is Bill Southworth reporting. In 1928, what was described as a mild sensation gripped the imaginations of the people of Dunedin. A clergyman of a local church, after selling his worldly goods, vanished with a member of the choir. The New Zealand Truth was happy to provide details to a wandering nation. Gregor Campbell. Vanished without leaving trace. Truth's investigation throws light on mystery surrounding remarkable double disappearance. Missing clergyman and married woman. From New Zealand Truth's Special Dunedin Representative. Can it be that the morsel of unfortunate coincidence has been carried along on the cruel, biting breath of unfair, uncharitable suspicion rending in its passage two Dunedin homes? That the simultaneous departure of Alfreda Lucia Gale, young wife of an equally youthful customs clerk, and Claude Routon Hassel, duly ordained as a deacon of St Paul's Cathedral, Dunedin, from their homes on February 14, has inspired unwarranted and ill-founded conjecture and even positive assertion. If this not be the case, then these two are parties to one of the strangest compacts ever listed in the ledger of human psychology. During the course of her seven years of married life, both in England and New Zealand, Mrs Hassel had been supremely happy with a husband whose whole life had been as an open book, irreproachable, of infinite care for her happiness and a constant inspiration to her. And yet, she says, scarcely more than a month ago, his whole attitude and conception of their life appeared to undergo a swift yet unmistakable transition from a lofty idealism of marriage and its attendant spirituality to a completely changed viewpoint. For some time during 1927, Mrs. Hassel had suffered impaired health, and it was with the object of her regaining full vigour and strength that they decided to sell up their home in Dunedin, that her husband might continue unhampered in his work while she was gaining the advantages offered by a sea trip to the old country. On February 8, their comfortable little home and its intimate effects went under the auctioneer's hammer, and she went to stay with some friends in Northeast Valley, while her husband should find lodgings near the centre of the city, so as to be in close and constant touch with his work and the needs of his parishioners. To her horror, she was informed a week later that her husband was nowhere to be found, that Mrs Gale had similarly disappeared, and that there was the ghastly, unthinkable suggestion that they had gone together, had planned to leave for Australia. For that is what the representative of New Zealand Truth understood during an interview with Edward Stephen Gale concerning the husband who, it seems, has gone, never to return. Although it is fairly well established that Mrs Gale has left the country, it is no means certain that Hassel is not still in Wellington. This is the first element of a twin contradiction in theory, and certainly the more charitable. On February 17, the day before Mrs Gale is supposed to have sailed by the Manuka, 
Hassel wrote his wife from Wellington, bidding her not to believe the worst of him. And to that hope, Mrs. Hassel is pathetically but hopefully clinging, believing not a shred of the frightful inference with which, she says, Dunedin is encircling the episode. It is by no means established that Hassel has left the country, and certainly no one in Dunedin appears to be fully aware of the true circumstances. His was a charming, if masterful, personality, and it is suggested that as his holidays were due in February, he decided upon a certain course of action, which he did not seem fit to disclose to anyone, went north to Wellington, found himself the unwitting victim of circumstance, and endeavoured to extricate himself and one other from a somewhat difficult contretemps, which, in part, at any rate, is borne out by his letter to Mrs. Hassel and perhaps negative by a suggestion made to truth by an old family friend of Mrs. Gale and also by her own husband during a conversation. The implied suggestion in these two interviews amounted to this, that on or about January 18, Effie Gale told her husband she could no longer live with him, that she loved Hassel and would go away with him at the end of February. But by far the strangest part of all, and one which throws to confusion the imputation that misconduct has ever occurred between them, is that Mrs Gale and Hassel are said to have sworn that they would neither travel nor live together as man and wife, in the fullest sense of the term, until each is free. Superficially, to some people such a compact as this is beyond understanding or probability. But an examination of the life of each party reveals an individual condition which encourages the belief that their arrangement will be carried out until they are free to marry. Mrs Gale is credited with a fine character, a beautiful contralto voice, which she had used with no little earnestness and inspiration for nine years in the cathedral, and a remarkable flair for tennis. For years she and her husband had been co-members of the Moana Tennis Club, on which courts their partnership had developed an unenviable reputation. Hassel's career as a lieutenant in the British Navy during the war was one of eminent distinction, and it appears that his two years of work as a churchman in Dunedin had been equally marked by diligence and zeal. What, then, was the real cause of this remarkable affair? Following their disappearance, and in view of what subtle inference on the public part, and vague reference to the occurrence by the two daily papers, had achieved, Truth approached Gale and suggested to him that a true revelation of the facts as he knew them would be much preferable to the fragments of idle gossip at present being disseminated. To which he agreed. Gale said, On or about January 18, my wife told me she could no longer live with me and that she and Hassel intended to leave the city by the end of February. On the following day she left the house, taking her personal belongings with her. I pointed out to her the hazardous and foolish step she intended to take, but I could not sway her from her conviction. Later, I learned that they proposed to leave New Zealand by the Manuka, and so on February 15, I rang the house at which she had been staying, only to be informed of her having left the house the previous day. No, I have no reason to believe that she was at any time guilty of any immoral relationship with Hassel, but I think she must have been deceiving me for some time. A friend of mine saw Mrs Gale leave by the Manuka, 
There could be no mistake, as he was speaking to her on the boat and just managed to get ashore as the gangway was removed from the ship's side. We had been married only three years. Contrary to vicious rumour, it is believed that no one had any real suspicion that the pair had been guilty of clandestine relationship, but rather that extended propinquity, their close association in many activities, meetings, and all the little functions generally encountered among churchgoers, perhaps accounted for and culminated in their sudden impulse to brave the world, its criticism, and its cant. That is to say, if the covenant suggested by Alfie Gale's old family friend is the correct explanation of their unexpected exit from Dunedin. So many are eager to prejudge. Will sceptics and scandal be confounded by the reappearance of Hassel, bearing with him a positive and reasonable explanation? Or have they burned their boats? If the latter proves the fact, then Mrs Hassel, already a stricken woman, will make her sad return to the land of her birth, where, among the flowers and environment of her English home, she may perhaps yet find surcease and lasting happiness. Neither Reverend Hassel's richly toned and clearly articulated voice, nor Mrs Gale's rich contralto, were heard at the divorce proceedings instituted by Mr Gale after the petition was served on them at 442 Auburn Road, Hawthorne, Melbourne. The divorce was granted. And I am hopefully the richly toned and clearly articulated Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. The famous British novelist J.B. Priestley visited Dunedin in the early 1970s and was shown around by people from the university and the arts community. Judy Southworth has discovered that he had some interesting comments to make about the city. In a previous programme quite some time ago, we looked at the comments of well-known people who'd visited Dunedin. One of these visitors was author, playwright and travel writer J.B. Priestley. In this programme, we look only at his comments, as after his early 1970s visit, he wrote a book on this trip with the title A Visit to New Zealand. This program takes extracts from the chapter he titled At Dunedin. Settled into the Southern Cross Hotel, it had been suggested that he contact artist Shona McFarlane. He did, and found her to be a well-informed, energetic host, bubbling with enthusiasm and with a wide circle of friends locally. As a member of the QE2 Arts Council, Shona had to attend a Wellington meeting of the council next day, so she'd planned a busy time for him. Priestley recalls this time as the peak day of his days in New Zealand. Hoping to provide me with a paint, Shona took us along the Otago Peninsula. Her choice was Sandfly Bay, but as we descended towards the sea, she agreed with me that it was far too windy to paint outdoors. Indefatigable and never lacking an idea, she moved us across the peninsula where Larnix Castle successfully defied the elements and all disasters except those provided by Larnix's own character and temperament. There was an arrangement that Fred O'Neill, an enthusiastic theatre man, should collect the picnic and bring it to us at the castle. Of Larnick, 
the New Zealand Encyclopedia tells us he was deservedly popular, being by nature open-handed and generous. But I, for one, would be more ready to honour his memory if he hadn't built a dungeon under his castle to lock up poachers and estate workers who came home drunk. My guess is that he was one of those very clever and ambitious financial men who had a silly side and subject to ideas of grandeur and folly. The fact that he built his castle as early as the 1870s, spending the equivalent of a million pounds, suggests that he suffered from hubris and finally paid the fatal price of it. The sun went out, the rain brought sleet with it, and Fred O'Neill arrived. We dived into the car to eat and discovered that through the malice of the gods most of the food had been left behind. But Fred now more than made up for the loss. He knew we'd want to visit the albatross nesting ground at Tyroa Head, and we were given permission to go beyond the severe fencing to give us a close-up of these astonishing creatures. Once we were out of the car, conditions were worse. We were now in albatross weather, the iced version of the roaring forties. In coats lent by the warden, we were able to get a good view of the birds. We were driven back to the city to the house of Shona's clever sister, Mrs. Francis, a painter. Laurie, her husband, just the man to host a party, and here we found good company and food and drink, a party in full swing. Among the guests were Gordon Buchanan, literary editor of the Otago Daily Times, Graham Billing, a writer awarded the Burns Fellowship at the university, and his wife Diana, who was to interview me later for her weekly The Listener. Professor and Mrs. Sawyer, the Gerard Currens representing the NZBC Talks Department, Mrs. Hannon, President of the Dunedin Repertory Society, her husband Jack, and daughter Debbie. There were a great many others, and represented a good cross-section of Dunedin intelligentsia. I had been pressed, one might almost say pressurised, to pay a visit to an amateur little theatre group, Finally, I agreed, as I hadn't been in contact with the theatre at all, amateur or professional, and this was hardly good enough for a visiting dramatist. I treated myself to a picture of what might happen. I saw myself meeting a small group of enthusiasts, and then asking or answering questions, giving them, if they wanted it, the benefit of my years of theatrical experience, which was extensive and not limited to the writing of plays. And I was quite wrong. Nothing of the sort had been planned. True, I was shown and asked to admire the stage and the tiny 80-seat auditorium that had been ingeniously contrived of what had been part of a private house. But instead of a serious small group wanting to ask equally serious questions, what I found was a large, noisy party, apparently consisting of people no more interested in me and the present and future of the theatre than I was in the statistics of the timber trade. I didn't see why I should have been put under pressure just to catch this babble of self-important performers and a few superior patrons of this minican experimental theatre. Next day we drove along the high road above the north shore of Otago Harbour, descending to look at Port Chalmers, Carey's, and Deborah Bay. 
after much toing and froing, I found something I wanted to paint. A quick, jaunty, cheeky sketch. I was well satisfied with my morning. Next to the art gallery in the park. Its director, Mr. Lloyd, took us around. He seemed to me a courteous and sensible man. And this is higher praise than it might first appear to be, for while most people in charge of art galleries are courteous, not all of them are sensible. The Dunedin Collection offers no astounding masterpieces, but very little rubbish. It appears to be strongest in 18th century portraits, including some Gainsboroughs and early English watercolours, rather weak in 19th century work, though I noticed a good Tissot, and the best-known Dunedin artist, Frances Hodgkins, had two rooms to herself. Dunedin is an odd city, though I hasten to add it's my first choice among the four cities we came to know. There was a time when I used to say that if I was kicked out of England, I would go at once to British Columbia and live just outside Vancouver. Now I think it would be Dunedin. It has the largest area of all the major cities, and yet it has the smallest population. Its certain grand civic style made me want to treble its population. While I was there, I never fully appreciated its fine buildings with their massive decorative fronts, their towers and spires. One needs a quick architectural eye, which I haven't got. I have enjoyed and appreciated Dunedin far more sitting back home, going through Shona McFarlane's portrait of a city, guided by her pencil and brush and affectionate jottings. I can't help feeling that what had been a noble attempt to create a South Pacific Edinburgh, with the best of it still there, had been leased more recently to Ohio and Southern California. The result isn't hopeless, but it is rather confused and messy. Furthermore, I was troubled by a vague feeling that the city must have been governed alternatively by wise men and blockheads. As I mentioned at the beginning, this extract is from the 1974 publication by Heinemann titled J.B. Priestley, A Visit to New Zealand. This is Judy Southworth for Heritage Matters. The award-winning Heritage Matters is broadcast on the first Monday of each month at 9.30 a.m. and replayed on the following Sunday at 7 p.m. There are further replays on the third week of the month, Thursday at 1 p.m. and Sunday at 7 p.m. Or you can listen as a podcast from the Otago Access Radio website at oar.org.nz. As Aotearoa New Zealand's National Heritage Agency, Heritage New Zealand Pohere is proud to sponsor Heritage Matters. Celebrate our heritage by becoming a member to visit more than 20 heritage places we care for across the motu for free. You'll receive a subscription to our award-winning magazine, exclusive member events and free or discounted admission to over 1,000 international heritage places. Support the heritage of Aotearoa New Zealand Check out visitheritage.co.nz. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.